I'm not singing because I don't have anything else to do. I'm singing because there is a fantastic song rising up out of my soul. Lata, latiata, lata, ta, 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 ta. La da da da, la da. But the melody lingers on. La da, gee, that's terrible. La da da. Oh yes, uh, there's an ad. I saw this ad, and it says uh, someplace uh, way out on the island, and it's one of these motels, and it says uh, just just a simple statement. It says just simply, very thin pica print beautiful black and white ad. It says, where the beautiful people play. So it's a motel there, you know, they got a beach. It's ocean there. It says, where the beautiful people play. Have you noticed that that's a, a growing thing in our world? There is a new class of people, like, say, the people who think young and the people who know where the action is, you know, people who know how to have fun, that old crowd... People who know how to fathom, and they're beautiful people. I wonder how many of those beautiful people are listening tonight. Is there any beautiful people listening tonight who know where, you know, who, who think young and who know where the action is? Smoke the right cigarette and drive, you know, out into Thunderbird country in your car with that model there, that sharp-faced, hatchet-faced model, you know, that, with the little gimlet, ball-bearing eyes. Driving right out of the Playboy world. So, tonight's program is a salute to the beautiful people, wherever they might be tonight, and to the people who think young, and those who know where the action is, yes, to the people who know how to have fun, yes, <laughs> the beautiful people, all the life readers, all the time readers, all the playboy readers, those who have all the right credit cards in their pockets and who really are worried about the cut of the shoulders on their forthcoming new beautifully done sport coat for this new exciting season that's coming up. And so tonight we are saluting the beautiful people, or you might be. <laughs> what are you doing sitting around wasting your time listening to the radio if you're so beautiful? If you were so beautiful, you'd know how to have fun. I can think of 35 things that are more fun than sitting around listening to rotten radio. But nevertheless, if you're going to do it, we'll be here. Yes. I just wish once somebody would say, just to me, Shepard, you're, of course, you understand, Shepard, you're one of the beautiful people. And furthermore, it's quite obvious that, Mr. Shepard, you know how to have fun. And furthermore, it's quite evident that you certainly know where the action is. Have you seen that ad for the, for the people who know where the action is? Go where the people go who know where the action is. <laughs> Be careful, though. You'll have to get busted. And that happens, too, sometimes to the guys who know where the action is. I've known several. Got a call from one of my friends in the tombs at 4 o'clock in the morning. He was looking for action, and he sure found it. He got three or four lumps behind the right ear while he was doing it, but he found the action. Speaking of... Uh, of of uh, magnificent uh, plays upon the ego which is within all of us. Uh, the ego that says, of course, there's no question about it. We all believe that underneath that rough, hewn exterior, 
and those rubbery jowls that we carry around, there is a beautiful creature that has never been allowed to come out because of, you know how rotten society is. It's never really, it doesn't really appreciate real beauty, never appreciates the, the, the truly good. Certainly you are that. Underneath it all, there's no question about that. Now, uh, slowly but surely, people are going to, uh, are, dri are drifting in the direction of what you can call the direct message to the ego of the average working slob. And uh, that's, the, that's the message that says, uh, well, here, you want me to give you an example? Here's a great ad. You'll never believe what it's, uh, uh, whatever it's, what it's, uh, yeah, bring, bring, bring on the thing in there. I think this, listen this. Understanding is the key. In a world beleaguered by existential difficulties, empathy is all. To know that one is loved by another is to establish the basic solidarity of man. And at the media dairy queen, Kimo Sabi, we love you. Enough to extend our concern into a special sale on quarts and half gallons this week, reducing the lowest prices in the county even further so that you may take our love and understanding into your home. Please do, because we understand, baby. We understand. <laughs> it's interesting, their love and understanding is frozen. <laughs> I always did feel that love and understanding can be bought in courts. A lot of guys have felt that way for years. They keep falling down the stairs on Saturday nights. <laughs> Isn't that a great ad? Listen to that. It's just a great... I'm putting this into our trivia file here, our vast file that is going into the Smithsonian Institute someday. I, uh, understanding is the key. And it uh, is absolutely no question about it. Now, now, if you can learn, if you, if really, if you can really learn to, uh, to play upon the emotions of your fellow human being, well, I don't think, you know, it, there was a time, are you, you know, how many people remember or, or at least have read, uh, say, Poor Richard's, now, Poor Richard's uh, uh, slogans. Of course, this is a slogan nation. We, we really believe in slogans, I think. Well, I, I don't know of any nation that doesn't really believe in slogans. They're printed on things. They uh, put it on billboards. If you've ever been to a uh, totalitarian country, you come out with your head just humming. I'm serious. It's just a, you see more pictures of guys' faces looking out benevolently at you. If you think, believe me, if you think Arthur Godfrey's got a sickening look in the eye, you ought to see the looks in the eye of, say, uh, Tito. If you've ever walked through Yugoslavia, you see those big pictures and the big brothers looking big daddy, big everything, and just looking down, just wondering and hoping and dreaming and doing everything for you. Well, it's, uh, it's an intriguing thing to see how the slogan slowly works its way into the subconsciousness and then is rejected but still believed by people. Now, for example... We have a, a slogan that says something to the effect that, uh, oh, uh, humbleness is important. Humility. Uh, the man should be humility. You know, humility, uh, modesty is the best policy, or is it honesty? Which is it? Honesty? What is it about modesty? Uh, poor Richard has one. Modesty. You don't know. Well, that's right. Most Americans don't. Then there's another one that, uh, about thrift. 
uh, oh, there's millions of them about threat. There isn't one single guy who really believes it anymore. In fact, if you start to advocate the policy of thrift, I wonder what would happen if somebody showed up on uh, Faye Henley's show and started to quote Benjamin Franklin, a penny saved is a penny earned. I don't believe in spending nothing. Stick every nickel under your... Yes, sirree, stick it under your mattress. I say that... <laughs> he'd be... People would be yelling at him as being un-American. And here he, all he's doing is, is quoting poor Richard, you know. He's quoting one of the great Americans. He's quoting Benjamin Franklin. Well, uh, we, we believe, on the one hand, that a man should be modest. We do. But on the other hand, we, we behave and act in exactly the opposite way. Modesty is a real bad thing. Uh, to the average person today. The last thing, have you, you, you know, show business, speaking of modesty, show business has so permeated people's lives today that most people are playing uh, a role. They, they're, they're, they're dressing, playing, and living a, a scene which has very little to do with the reality of what they are. Oh, yeah, I, uh, we have an elevator operator here who, believe me, he plays elevator operator the way Roger Maris plays left-handed batter. And he, he sweeps that door, you know, and he moves around. And you can see him, he, you know, he's doing everything but, but picking up dirt and moving it, swishing it in his hands, you know, and spitting. And, <laughs> and, and, and well, you know, speaking of, of showbiz, I, I don't know, uh, did you get a chance to see the Little League kids play? They had the Little Leaguers playing, uh, it was the Little League uh, World Series being played on television. And that was a spooky thing to see. It was really spooky because all these kids had all the movements which they had gained from television about you know big league ball players. One kid has the has the Rocky Calavito stretch. Yeah, you could see this kid. You know, he comes up with a stretch. Calavito has a trick that he does with a bat. He puts it behind his shoulder blades and moves it back. Well, this little skinny eleven-year-old kid is doing this, and you can see it's hurting him. See, <laughs> he's doing it. and He twitches every time he does it. But they've got all this stuff going. Everything except, of course, the basic thing like talent. And so it was. It was great to see a little kid get up there, and the announcer he says, uh, "You notice uh, this kid? Uh, he says that his uh, favorite is Stan Musial. You notice he's using the uh, the peep around the corner stance that Musial made. Here's this little squirt up there, looking around the corner, and the kid winds up and throws a pitch, and he falls away from the pitch." falls down to the ground swinging at it just exactly the way the fat kids do when they're playing the skinny kids at the school picnic. He has all the, all the trimmings of, uh, of action, but none of the actuality. It's very interesting to watch. And, and I'm and I going to see that this is a genuine microcosm here, watching these kids play, because I suspect that there are many statesmen today who have seen other statesmen on the television. <laughs> and, and, oh, yes, of course, you know, it, it's been long enough now for guys to have been influenced by it. Uh, there are many guys today in politics who were, let's say, in their middle 20s when television came in. You know, they didn't know. And so they started to watch the very important people who gather on the very important shows, you know, on the very important day of television, that Sunday afternoon when the ratings are low and the commercial log is low and so you put out all these uh, these panel shows where guys are discussing the state of the world and religion and they're always discussing juvenile delinquency and humor and all that and they go on and on well i imagine many a guy has learned his his technique has learned his style 
you know, the, the, the furrowed brow, the, uh, the, the sudden look of concern that flashes across the eye when someone asks them a serious question. Well, I, uh, I would not care to answer that at this time. At this time, because I don't feel we have enough time, and uh, I would prefer to answer that later. And you see, it's said with that beautiful, rich, fruitiness of a man who has great truths about to be unleashed when the right time arrives. Speaking of fruit, this is WOR AM and FM New York. He'll be here for a while. But uh, <laughs> I, 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 watch, I watch technique. I'm curious at the number of actors, for example, who must have learned acting watching television. It's like an endless mirror where one actor somewhere in the 30s must have played a real person, you know. Somewhere along the line, some guy must have observed some real guy walking down the street, and he's using him as the model for his characterization. Well, then it got in the movie, and three little kids saw that who later became actors, and then they are playing the kid that they saw in the movie who later got on television and so till finally actors don't even play people anymore they play other characters that were seen in other movies they really do you know they play characters that were seen in other movies do you know that what what's known as the traditional hamlet have you ever heard that expression you haven't well i'm going to tell you there is such an expression as the traditional hamlet i'm sure what do you mean you haven't heard of that it's a standard well, you read all the reviews. What do you mean you've never heard of it? There's such a thing. Well, what is the traditional Hamlet? He isn't short, fat, and bald. All right, I'll ask you. What is a traditional Hamlet? That's right. Okay, high cheekbones, burning eyes, wavy locks, the whole jazz. Okay, very nervous-looking guy. Well, now, that's, that is, is a traditional Hamlet. Well, now, that came about. It was not always that way, you know. Now what we do when we do plays, we repeat what somebody else did somewhere way back in the past. Somebody did a Hamlet like that. And that became the accepted Hamlet. Now, uh, the question is, does it, does it have much to do with Hamlet? Or does it have to do with the way a guy once played Hamlet? Very interesting question. Very difficult to answer, really. And so you see a hoodlum in the movie. Is the hoodlum really based on, on E.G. Robinson? Or is it based on hoodlums? Very difficult question to answer. <laughs> Very difficult. You see a cowboy in the movies? Is it based on John Wayne? Or is it based on a cowboy? Well, I don't know. You know, I think it's John Wayne. That's, that's the truth. Until, until finally uh, we, we watch. We will see an actress. I've, I've seen plays where an actress will do something, and, and she will be playing a person and in a situation that I have observed myself in life. And she will be playing it completely out of kilter, uh, completely out of the way it is at that point. I mean, it never is that way in that situation and that kind of person. And yet it will be hailed as a triumph of, of reality. And, and I suspect that what it is is everybody writes. You know that most playwrights today write plays based on, on the attitudes and concepts of other plays that they've seen? Now, I don't mean that they plagiarize. I mean most playwrights' ideas about the world are totally centered around what they've learned from other plays and read about other. Very few, very few, well, this is a problem, too, I guess, that goes back to the writer himself uh, of any kind of material. Most writers live in the world of writing, not necessarily in the world of, of walking around and sniffing and, and blowing your nose and drinking coffee at the chocolate nuts and all that stuff. I have a friend who, who, <laughs> who, 
who was famous for writing writing a proletarian drama, a drama about uh, you know just ordinary simple people who are looking for the ordinary simple life, who is and as far as I know has never gotten into the subway for the last ten years. He's scared to death of it, and yet his uh, his characters in his play talk about the beauties of riding on the subway. <laughs> It's a truth. I just, uh, so, so what? Of course, what he's doing is he, he's taken a, a popular romantic concept, which he believes he really believes in, but it's a concept he's picked up from other guys like Soroyan and, and people like uh, you know. It's a thing that we should believe in, uh, whether he does or not. He believes that it's a wonderful thing to get on the subway and ride all the way to Coney Island, ride all night, eating popcorn, eating hot dogs, looking out at Coney Island with all those wonderful Ferris wheels and all those wonderful little people out there. La da da da. You know, and he, he just believes that that's the way you should believe, and he writes it down in the play, and everybody applauds it, but he doesn't believe it. But he thinks he believes it. <laughs> uh, who was it? The old Chinese slogan say, Always judge man by how what he does, not what he say. Well, uh, we don't do that here, you know. You know, speaking of old, old uh, Chinese slogans and uh, the uh, concomitant uh, results, Last night, I'm, I'm afraid I got off on this on this business of uh, of the steel mill, and uh, we got we got hung up on a steel mill. Do you want do you, do you want to hear more about steel mills? Is you're interested? No, there's not. You just can't talk about steel mill. You either you either talk about the steel mill, you feel a steel mill, and I'm I'm amazed at the number of people who will come up to you after and say, "Did you really work in a steel mill?" Of course, <laughs> I, I must say yes. I worked in a steel mill, and there's. Uh, uh, there it is, you know. That's all there is to it. It's nothing to be proud of. It's nothing to be ashamed of. It's just a fact. You work in a steel mill. Uh, I, I suppose, though, people always seem to be a little bit surprised that anyone who uh, is doing something that, in a sense, is in the public eye uh, has ever had any past before, has ever done anything, has ever, you know, has never had any other life. Uh, what did Marlon Brando do before he became Brando? You know, he wasn't an actor at the age of 12. He was not an actor even at the age of 20. What did Brando do? You don't know. Uh, what did uh, What did Paul Newman do before he became Paul Newman? We like to just think these guys at the moment of birth, you know, were walking around playing Stanley Kowalski and were famous and everyone was applauding them. <laughs> All the jazz, you know. I'm sorry. But uh, I could... Uh, Oh, yeah, I wanted to do that thing. Uh, do you have my oriental music in there? Uh, I, I'd like to do this because it, uh, it relates to something that we were discussing last night about the concept of the heart as the, the, uh, the thing in your body that contains, the, not the soul really, but it contains the sentiment you know, of man. We talk about guys, you know, with, with rich hearts, we talk about a racehorse. Now there's a there's a nag that really has heart. Well, you know, uh, we we talk about a ball player with heart. We talk about music with heart. We talk about a man dying of a broken heart, uh, and so on up and down the line. Well, that's an interesting thing because other civilizations do not necessarily hold that the heart is very important at all. There is one civilization that honors the pancreas. Oh yes, they say he's got a real pancreas. Yes, I'm telling you the truth. Now, I don't want to make everybody mad by telling you what civilization that is, but uh, it is true that they believe in the pancreas. Their, their, their native word for pancreas is not pancreas, of course. It sounds, it's a much better, more romantic word, but the word pancreas, just pancreas, you know, doesn't sound very romantic. 
It sounds like a, like a lost language or something, or a ship or something. But pancreas, uh, no, it really doesn't. It sounds more like a Greek god, one of the lesser ones, the god of the flat tire. But uh, pancreas, sure you know about him, the myth of pancreas and uh, Olivero and Olivetti and uh, Zeus. Time they were having the big bowling game up there. Don't you know about that? I'll tell you that later on. Some of these Greek myths are very, oh boy. They're, well, they're what they used to call in Indiana blue. Very blue. And uh, I'm not going to, because you know, the gods in those days swung a lot of ways. They, uh, they were not the kind of gods we think of, you know, with a direct pipeline to oh, Norman Vincent Peale. The kind of gods that they had, oh boy, they, they had gods of everything. Like gods of Whoopi, you know, in charge of Whoopi. Oh, yes. Well, what, do you, what do you think? Well, if we're crying out loud, what do you think? Bacchus was coming swinging and hollering and yelling. No, 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 no. Now, I'd like to, uh, I'd like to show you what another civilization would do if, uh, and does, as a matter of fact. Uh, it does not believe at all in heart. It, uh, in fact, has often says, people who believe in the heart are people who have no heart. And now... Radio Tokyo brings you interesting sociological lesson relating to Tokyo past and present and Japan people. Radio Tokyo, a special non-commercial public service, brings you Japan life. And now Radio Tokyo brings for special Western listeners who listen to Radio Tokyo introduction to Japanese life. When a Japanese gentleman tells you the bugs in my belly are restless, he means I am not fully satisfied. If man in Tokyo, Japan says, my abdomen will decide, he means I'll make up my mind. Prime Minister Hayako Ikeda told news conference recently, let us hold our stomach firmer. What he meant, Western friends, let us not get excited. The reason is that in Japan, the most vital part of the anatomy is the stomach, abdomen, or belly. Known simply in Japanese as hara. It is the essence of the human body, like head or heart, in your less uh, Western countries. Less uh, almost said here, less enlightened Western countries. As a result, the Japanese take special care of the stomach, fully protecting it from elements of nature. Many Japanese wear a belly band or stomach wrap-around, usually of cotton, in the summer and of wool in the winter. The stomach band also serves as secret wallet space for men and a sort of girdle or corset for women. Emphasis on protecting the stomach begins at birth and ends with death. The hara takes on an abstract meaning because the Japanese attach ritualistic importance to the midriff. It can also mean a mind, courage, power, efficiency, conscience, intention, and other spiritual intentions, functions. Thus, a man of stomach, very common Japanese expression, does not indicate a man possessing extraordinary belly, but means a man of willpower, courage, or strength. A big stomach means blood-minded or full of understanding. A block stomach means dishonest man or someone who cannot be trusted. A clean abdomen, 
honest man or person with clear conscience. The stomach is made means a person with definite ideas or principles. And without stomach, a person with no courage or will. Literally, a man without guts in a Western expression. To laugh in one's stomach means to snickle. Search one's belly to sound person out. And to open stomach and talk means speak frankly. So once again, we have brought you Japan peoples on the march. Hands across the sea, many greetings to Western listeners. Other questions pertaining to Japanese life will be answered in future on Radio Tokyo, bringing you special Japan life marching across the seas. Quest for people with strong stomachs. Special edition of Japanese Valentines available. By the way, Japanese Valentines don't have hearts on them. Oh no, they have a big. It's very interesting. Of course, I mean that's what they did. You did, don't you get what they're talking about there? It's all part of the same situation. I'll. I'll tell you, you know, uh, when, when you, well, you, you just, it's the way it is. And I, I can think, <laughs> I can think of some great love scenes where the guy, <laughs> oh, no wonder we have trouble. I have a firm belief that people never will understand one another. Maybe that's just as well, because I, I've always suspected if they ever did, there'd be mass murder all over the world. More guys would be hitting each other in the mouth than you ever could shake a stick at. You know, uh, Speaking of uh, of misunderstanding and the the concept of uh, of, of of the word the the uh, whole thing of the syntactical problems that we run into last night uh, again I, I must refer to last night you know speaking of uh, of showbiz uh, and I'm not veering off of the theme here but do you know that uh, there is a minister in a whole congregation. Uh, that is planning a resort. In fact, they're going to build this resort in the Southwest, and it's a resort devoted to a very special kind of show business. Now, do you, you you know that many resorts today are devoted to say golfing, uh, where you go to this place and you you golf all day long, or or you go to another resort and you can you can horse ride, you can you can go riding all all day and play tennis and so on. In short, the specialty resort now is a very important thing. Well, now one of the most interesting kinds of resorts they're building up is a guy who, whose chief entertainment is religion. And you can go to this resort. Yes, it's a resort. It is not a church, so I don't think I'm being sacrilegious. You go to this resort, and all day long in the auditorium, they, they show great Hollywood epics of the past, like Ten Commandments. Uh, yes, they show great, <laughs> great religious epics. That, that have all these dancing girls, you know. I love that kind of religion that Hollywood puts out. It's got, it's got more stuff going on in many of them than the stag films. And once in a while they mention religion, you know, and, it, and, and God usually comes in over the echo chamber 
once in a while saying something like, Thou shall not kill. And then Charlton Heston runs around and everybody starts hitting each other and the golden calf is brought out. <laughs> and the dancing girls start again. You see, the dancing girls go for 28 solid minutes. And then the voice suddenly says, Thou shall not lust. And we've been sitting there lusting like mad, you see. And then the the the, the voice says, "Wow, oh yeah, yeah, yeah." And, and that's right. This is a religious movie. And then then uh, then there's a bunch of guys hitting each other in the face and yelling. And yes, you see them. They're pillaging the castle, and everybody has guts are flying and blood, and everyone's screaming and hollering. And Charlton Heston is cutting guys' heads off. And then all of a sudden, the voice says. Thou shall not covet thy neighbor's goods. And you see him galloping over the uh, over the hill, and uh, that's that's uh, called a religious movie. It's very important, and uh, I, uh, I I I like the idea of this new kind of resort where these people go and they do nothing but watch these turkeys. And uh, of course, this is uh, this is for people who really don't want religion. They they want a lot of slogans and they want a lot of color. Action going on, and they want it in widescreen with a very loud soundtrack by Dimitri Tiomkin going a uh, full blast, the Hollywood Symphony Orchestra playing into an echo chamber, you know, and and uh, <laughs> it's very very interesting thing there. I, uh, although I will say one thing about most of these epics, uh, the one good thing about them is that uh, they're very boring. Uh, you've seen one, you've seen them all. Have you noticed the strange makeup that these people have? It's all kind of orange. Uh, that's the non-committal makeup. Oh, don't you understand that there's a lot of argument as to what color all those people were running around over there in the Middle East at the time all that was happening? So they just pick an in-between color. It's it's technicolor orange. They're not exactly any color. They're just like pumpkin color. Have you ever looked very closely at, at say, uh, oh, uh, James Mason when he's playing one of the wise men or something? He's got this funny orange look. He could be almost any color. You can say, well, maybe it's a little overexposed. He's actually, well, it doesn't make any difference. That's especially done for TV and, and uh, for movies. So, so that no matter what color you believe everything is, you can say, well, maybe it's the right color, except the light was bad. Because it wasn't very good light there, and they overdeveloped the film. Well, that, that's non-controversial religion, you see, that doesn't deal with anything. I, I, I just like once uh, one, of these, uh, one of these voices to holler out at the audience, Thou shall not waste thy time in frivolity in Cinerama. Boom! A big fist comes out and destroys the mezzanine. And, and you can hear the sound of the horses galloping through the soundtrack, and everybody pours out on the street with a wild look in their eye <laughs> and heads for the nearest church of their choice. But uh, it's too bad. Uh, you know, there's not much stereo going on down there at the little church around the corner. However, uh, it'll come. But uh, this guy, this minister, he's he's uh, he's planning a resort now where you can go and you can watch these movies all day long. And every week they will have a giant uh, extravaganza musical, and that's exactly what he calls it. I'm quoting here: We will have every week a sacred, gigantic musical extravaganza. I kind of like that. That covers the whole field. And I can imagine Mary Martin will making guest appearances there, and she'll be playing various religious figures. I can think of a half a dozen of them that she can play. And, uh, and it'll all be done with songs, with Richard Rogers pumping the organ there, and you're going to get, oh, yes, they're all going to be working. And I kind of like that idea. He says that, uh, that you can come for two weeks instead of, uh, you know, you can just sit there and do that stuff. And, of course, they'll have a golf course attached with it. 
and they'll have wonderful food. They're, they have all kinds of non-denominational food, just like the non-denominational religious movies. It's very good food. And uh, they'll have, they'll have uh, a swimming pool, big swimming pool, that is in the shape of a sacred symbol that uh, you can all swim in. And it's a dual-purpose pool, actually, and it looks very good from the air and at the same time, but great for swimming, you know. Shallows there in the deep water and high dive and so on. The high dive will be in the shape of a, of a scaffold. And uh, very interesting. And this, yes, it's all symbolic. And he said, they're, they're going to have this, it's going to be a big thing. And I, I, I wonder, it's, it's, it's the new kind of dynamic, irreligious attitude that's beginning to sweep the world that's, uh, in a sense, uh, showbiz has taken over. You know, last night after I. Uh, after I finished this show about uh, the steel mill, a lot of people uh, at least wrote, according to the mail today, uh, and were, were seemed to be thrown by reality. They were thrown by the fact that people get hurt, uh, and they were they, they they literally were somehow bothered by that. Now I didn't make up the stories. And I and I wasn't wasn't telling them to be sensational in any sense of the word. But then on the other hand, I can I can tell you stories where people didn't get hurt in the steel mill. Incredible stories, uh, like myself. I, I never forget one time one of the great moments of of genuine mortal fear that I had. True mortal fear, you know. Mortal fear is something you don't have often in your life. But mortal fear is the fear that this is the moment. It has finally happened. It has come. This is it, you know. This is it. And it is a wild, incredible, sudden rush of fear that is just overwhelming when you have this this rush of uh, mortal fear. Uh, most of us have fears all the time bugging us. But rarely does that big one jump out of the bushes. Ah, right, here it is. Grab you and shake you. And, and all the little stuff, you know, all the little jazz about whether you, you know, whether anybody loves you and all that stuff is all gone, boy, when you had that mortal one. Well, let me tell you what happened with me one day in the mortal fear department associated with the steel mill. And, of course, the reason that, that a steel mill is so intriguing to me and to anyone who's ever worked in it is because a steel mill is about as basic as, say, a man tilling the soil, or a man uh, working in the sea. Uh, these are basic activities. Uh, thousands and thousands of years, men have molded and have smelted metals. And there is a, a secret knowledge, and it's never spoken, a secret knowledge among the people who work in the steel mill, that they are working in one of the great basic activities of man. The fight against the sea, the tilling the soil, the, uh, the molding and the smelting of metals, these are all very basic. They have nothing whatsoever to do with ad agencies. They have nothing whatsoever to do with showbiz. It's the kind of thing of which civilizations are built and finally destroyed, too, I'm sure. But there is this sense. And so working in a steel mill gives a man the sense a very odd, sometimes only half-recognized sense of uh, genuine achievement. It's the, the same kind of achievement that a man must feel when he has completed a long voyage, in a, a tough voyage in a boat, and uh, or he's, he's brought back the load of fish from the Grand Banks. You know, this man knows he's done something, and there it is. It's, they're weighing it in. Uh, when, when, a, when a group of men working on the steel mill 
in the in the open hearth when when those when they're making those taps and they can see that stun that tonnage going through they know even though they never say it they never romanticize like this i'm doing this myself they know that they've done something really have done something when they want when they go home from work there is a sense of having been involved in something gigantic and very necessary now they will spend all of their lives complaining about it just like the guys uh, one of the funniest interviews i ever heard was a a, a captain who was <laughs> retiring from one of the one of the ocean liners and after 46 years he was quitting and so the reporter asked him uh, what he, uh, how he felt about quitting. Doesn't he feel sorry? And the guy says, no, I am glad to get away from sea. I'm very afraid of the ocean. It's a terrible thing, always, always out there getting ready to kill me. And he, he admitted that he was afraid. And, of course, the reporter was very upset and asked him to give him another statement which said the right thing. Yes, I'm sorry to leave. Well, uh, just that's the way it is with a steel mill. People are afraid of it, and at the same time, they're drawn to it. Well, one day... Again, I might say that I, uh, the job I had was all over the steel mill. I, I ran everywhere. And uh, one of the most fortunate jobs I've ever had in my life for learning, uh, just learning without even knowing I was learning. It was just learning. And the steel mill is, uh, is, uh, is, oh, it's tremendous in size. I don't know how many Manhattans you can lay down right in the middle of, uh, of one of the larger steel mills, but there are, I'm sure you can put several of them right in the middle of it, and it wouldn't even touch the sides. Uh, after all, when there are 45, 50,000 men working this gigantic uh, thing uh, on every shift, you can realize what size this must be. The tin mill alone is like a mile and a half long, just the tin mill. Uh, the 14-inch merchant mill is a mile long, and the hot strip is maybe a mile and a half long. And these gigantic buildings are all lined up, belching smoke and flame, and after a while you're just totally immersed in it and you think of no life outside of it. Well, I used to run from department to department on a solid dead run, and I knew every, practically every foot of this enormous mill, which was the Inland Steel Mill on the shores of Lake Michigan. I knew every foot intimately. I knew where the puddles were. I knew where the things that exploded were. I knew when to duck in the dark. I knew where to watch out when the thing would come around the corner on, all of a sudden on the hot rail and would be maybe 5,000 degrees. I knew, all, I knew every inch of the place. I knew where the loud noises were and the soft noises were. I knew where you could get good coffee. I knew where the guys were tough and I knew where they were nice. I knew where they were rotten. I knew all, you know, you just get so you know the whole scene. And after a while, you're really on top of it. And you get so that you are lulled just the way a, an airplane pilot is sometimes lulled after thousands of hours of flying. And he just that little one minute, he, he, he's sitting there, and the next thing you know, he hasn't done something vital, and that's it. it just right that instant. And that it's the, the, the thing that a sailor knows, too, that uh, you sit out on that sea hour after hour, day after day, year after year, and then one day the big typhoon comes, or the big rock, and you've always vaguely suspected it would. Well, one day I am running through the mill. And uh, I shouldn't be telling you this at this time because it was a winter day. Now, the, the, the steel mill winter is a very special kind of winter, especially to the guys who work in the mill. It's alternately blinding hot and blazingly cold, incredibly cold, because the mill is based right on the side of the lake and the giant ice flows are out there and that wind is blowing in. So you run in and out of, of ice-cold places into hot, ice-cold into hot. And so a lot of your time is spent just fighting nature alone, not, let alone the steel mill. Well, one day I, I'm, I'm about two-thirds of the way through my 
day, uh, I had made three or four complete runs, running through the mill, maybe five and six, eight miles at a crack. And now, I, oh yes, it was, it was, it was. Believe me, a job for only athletes. And, uh, that's the truth. And, in fact, they gave the job to ex-athletes. Uh, high school or college got this job. It was a prelude to other jobs, of course. But you learned the steel mill like the back of your hand, and you ran night and day. We used to start at maybe four in the morning, and we would run straight through till six, six thirty. Just run, and I mean literally run six days a week. So you get so that you're. It's a routine. Uh, and that's when it becomes dangerous. That's really when it becomes dangerous because when you're first on a job like that, your your mind is alert. You're looking at everything. Well, I'm a really old veteran at this point, you see, and I'm running like mad. I leave the coal strip and I go tearing down past the hot metal scales and I make the turn going through the through the slag yard and I make another twist and I go past the chipper mill and I'm on my way, you see, and I'm running. I'm running, and I've got my sack of mail next to me, and I'm sorting it as I run. And I, everything is going. You know, my mind is just clicking away there, and I'm, I'm totally immersed in what I'm doing. The wind is howling past me, and I'm coming up to the blast furnace. Well, now, the, the blast furnace row, now, if you've ever seen a blast furnace, it looks like a gigantic, sitting up on end, Atlas rocket. A little thicker than an Atlas rocket, rounded up at the top. It isn't pointed like that, but it stands up there maybe 10, 12, 15 stories high. Oh, yes, it's a tremendous structure, a long, high structure. And, of course, there's all kinds of pipes and things running up and down the side of it, and it's a dull red color, and it's a dangerous-looking thing. It's a dangerous-looking, and there's several of them all there in a line, and I'm running, and up the side of this blast furnace is a, is a, a thin metal lattice ladder. You know the kind of ladder that you can see the ground through? Just a metal thing, uh, like, like a fire escape. And so I'm sorting my mail. You see, it's got two little thin metal railings running up, and it goes right up the side at almost a, a vertical angle. So I hit this thing, and I go... I'm running up the side of this thing. It's like running right up the side of a 12-story building. And I'm going... I get up to the top, and there's a little tiny platform there. Again, transparent, you know, just one of these metal mesh things. And I look down at the ground. No, I've been doing this now for a year. I know it all. I go into this little tiny office. There's a man sitting up there. I give him the mail. I turn and I go... I go out. I start going down and suddenly my feet go right out from under me. Whoop! Like that. Whoop! Up I go like that. And I see the ground for the first time all day long. And I can see it 12 stories down. Instantly, my two arms, without thinking, go oomph. I clamp down on the side of the two railings. My feet are swinging out, and I hear the guy behind me. He comes running out. He says, what are you doing? Whoop! I go like that once out again, and I swing back. Both my shoulder blades are out of, uh, are completely out of their sockets. I swing back. He grabs me, and I'm hanging out there, looking down. Oh, my God. My mail flies out. I can see the snowstorm of mail slowly drifting down. Great, long, funnel-shaped thing of mail and he pulls me back in the office one of my shoulders is dislocated the other is bruised and I sit there sit here for a minute son just sit for a minute what the devil were you trying to do I said I wasn't trying to do anything I was just going he said just sit here for a minute and all of a sudden I had that wild frantic mortal fear of that ground and wow was it down there a long ways away and was it hard was it hard?
Shepard braves the elements and other hazards, uh, including these airwaves, again tomorrow night at 11.15 to midnight. This is WOR Radio, your station for news. Stay tuned for the Long John Nebel program. WOR AM and FM, your RKO general station in New York. At the WOR time signal, it'll be exactly 12 midnight.